Tonight I'd like to talk about two of the most predominant and far-reaching aspects of our experience. They're aspects that condition both our happiness and our suffering, and that play out in our meditation practice and play out in our lives in the world. These are the realms of thought and emotion. But in order to have a fuller understanding of how to work with thought and emotion in our minds, it's helpful to place them in the framework of two overarching principles in the Buddhist teachings. These two principles are that of relative truth and more ultimate truth. We could also describe it as the realm of karma in the realm of emptiness. We could describe it as the realm of content or the realm of process. So we need to understand how to work with thought and emotion in both of these realms, on both of these levels. It's important to consider both of these levels because it's easy to become attached to one or the other of them. And this is one of the dangers of spiritual practice. People sometimes get attached to the idea of emptiness and then don't give consideration to the relative world. Oh, everything's empty. Or people, more commonly, are attached to the realm of form, to the realm of content, and we get enmeshed in the solidity of things. So we want to understand how both of these levels, the relative and the more ultimate, uh, interplay with one another, particularly this evening with regard to thoughts and emotions. The importance of understanding thought and emotion is highlighted in many different places in the text, in all the Buddhist traditions. One Tibetan text describes the untrained mind as tumbling like a waterfall. There's one verse from the Dhammapada which describes the mind in this way. The active mind is difficult to tame, flighty and wandering wherever it wills. Taming it is essential, leading to the joy of well-being. So I'm sure You've all had the experience of the mind tumbling like a waterfall, or the mind flighty, wandering where it will. So we all know this from our experience. We're sitting, attending to the breath, or to the body, or to sounds, and in a moment the mind can hop on a train of association, associated thought. And we don't know we've hopped on this train, We don't know where the train is going. And after some time, we again awaken to the present moment. And sometimes it's in a very different mental environment than from where we started. So the question then is, how do we work with thoughts? This very pervasive activity of the mind. Learning to understand and to shape the thought process. Again, this is from the Dhammapada, and you know this is from the Buddhist time, and so he uses images from that time. 
for those of you who don't know the English word, it's not a very common word, <coughs> Fletcher. <coughs> a Fletcher is someone who makes arrows. So the Buddha is talking about <coughs> just, <coughs> just as a Fletcher shapes an arrow, so the wise develop the mind, so excitable, uncertain, and difficult to control. So, <laughs> I think it's interesting and somewhat encouraging <coughs> to realize that our own experience of our minds are no different than the minds of the people <coughs> in the Buddhist time. When the Buddha is talking about training the mind and understanding its flighty nature, he was talking 2,600 years ago, but he could be talking to us today because the nature of the mind remains the same. The particular content may be different, but the patterns, the habituated tendencies in the mind are just the same. So how to work with thoughts? With quickly passing thoughts, you know, thoughts that just arise and pass as we're attending to the breath or the body or sounds, all we really have to do is to be aware of them arising and passing. These are ones that don't particularly catch us or carry us away. One way of refining our mindfulness, even with these quickly passing thoughts, is to practice paying attention to when, in the duration of that thought, we become aware that we're thinking. So just to notice that. Are we aware of that thought after it's already gone? Are we aware of it in the middle? Are we aware of it just as it arises? Simply exercising mindfulness in this way, just to pay attention, not with the judgment, but just to see where did I, where did I become aware that I was thinking? Just that question in the mind <coughs> will help to refine and strengthen the mindfulness of thought as an object. The essential point here, as we're aware of these quickly passing thoughts and all other kinds as well, is not to add to the awareness an attitude of judgment, an attitude of aversion, an attitude of resistance to the thinking process. And Suzuki Roshi, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he really captured the essence of right attitude. He said, don't be bothered by your thoughts. Let them come and let them go. So it's very simple. This, this is not complicated. This awareness of the thoughts that are not particularly catching us. You know, that are just arising, quickly passing, so we can work with them in a very simple way. But when we're working with thoughts where there are deeply habituated patterns, where they really take us <coughs> on a train of association, with thought patterns that come repeatedly, they come again and again and we find ourselves lost in them again and again, so then we need some additional strategies. We need other ways of working with them. Because generally, with these strongly conditioned habit patterns of thought, 
this simple being mindful, don't be bothered by them, is not enough. We are bothered by them, right? And we get caught up in them. So in exploring different strategies of working with these more pervasive kind of thoughts, we have to expand our understanding of what mindfulness means. The word sati in Pali, which is usually translated as mindfulness, is used in the texts in a fairly broad way. There are, there are different functions of mindfulness. So I want to mention just a few because they all have bearing on how we can be with the thoughts. The most fundamental meaning of the word sati is to remember, remembering. And in the texts, this remembering is done in various ways. One is the actual process of recollecting something. And so it's said it's helpful to recollect, to be mindful, to remember the virtues of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. To recollect, to remember one's commitment to sila. So all of these are aspects of mindfulness, of what mindfulness means to remember or to recollect. It also means, and this is how we more commonly understand it, it means to remember the present moment. To remember to be present. That's another aspect of mindfulness. Present moment awareness. So two little tips to help us remember. Both of these are stories that yogis told me. One is a woman who had recently been on a cruise. And in her stateroom, that's probably familiar from hotels, or you know, there was a little map diagramming the rooms and the layout of the ship with a little arrow pointing to her room. And underneath, you are here. And she said that became her mantra for the whole cruise. Wherever she was, you are here. <laughs> you are here. That's a wonderful mindfulness uh, technique. The other reminder was somebody here now, and I hope I remember this correctly in the interview. Uh, we were talking about mindfulness being present, and she said, I, she was. Uh, either learning or you know beginning mountain cli- rock climbing, you said one of the principles that's drummed into one in rock climbing is stay over your feet. And is that right? Who, who told me that? <laughs> keep, keep your weight over your feet. Yeah. So keep your weight over your feet. I like stay over your feet <laughs> because so much of mindfulness is about just settling back. And I'm sure you've noticed how often we're just slightly ahead of ourselves. We're leaning forward in anticipation of the next step or the next breath or the next thing we have to do. So just stay over your feet or you are here. That's another meaning of mindfulness. So it's just the opposite of being absent-minded, 
you know, of not knowing where we are. It's the opposite of toppling forward. The challenge of being mindful of thoughts in this way, so that we know, you know, we're here, is that they're very slippery. They just slide into the mind. And in the sliding into the mind, they don't have the same initial impact as a sound does or as a sensation. You know, when they arise, they're more noticeable. A thought being so ephemeral, it kind of slides in and it doesn't have that initial impact. So very often we're not aware that it has arisen. And before we know it, we're carried away by it in a stream of papancha, of, of mental proliferation. So there's another function of mindfulness, another way that mindfulness works. And it has a relevance for how we can work with these different thoughts that arise. And that is mindfulness is described as the protector or the guard of the mind, protecting us from unskillful, unwholesome thought patterns. And this is, this is tremendously important. Ajahn Sumedho captured the importance of this. And I love this, this one-line teaching. He said, our practice is not to follow the heart, it's to train the heart. You know, and there's so much in kind of, you might say, new age philosophy. You know, just follow your heart. Well, you all know not everything in our heart is so wise and wonderful. There's a lot that is, but there's a lot that isn't. You know, there are a lot of unskillful patterns, unskillful impulses as well. So it's not simply a question of following our hearts. We want to train our hearts in skillful states. So there's one discourse the Buddha gave. He called the two kinds of thoughts. And in it, he described this guarding function of the mind. And in this discourse, by understanding these two kinds of thoughts, we really can begin to appreciate nuances of what mindfulness means. Mindfulness is quite expansive in how it's applied. So two kinds of thoughts. So I'll read a little bit from the sutta. Bhikkhus, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, of goodwill, and compassion. As I abided thus, dividing the thoughts into these two classes. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, when a thought of sensual desire, you know, or ill will, or cruelty, arose in me, I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire, of ill will, of cruelty, has arisen in me. 
this thought leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom. It causes difficulties and leads away from Nibbana. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, to the affliction of others, to the affliction of both, these thoughts subsided in me. Whenever a thought of sensual desire, ill will, cruelty arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. And so it's interesting that in this situation with these patterns of thought that may be deeply habituated, when the mindfulness isn't strong enough to just simply see the arising of it and letting it pass, when we get caught by it, this protecting, guarding function of mindfulness is very helpful. So we recognize what the thought is, we recognize when it's unskillful, and we reflect. And there's a power in the reflection. Leads to my own affliction, leads to others' affliction, leads to the affliction of both. Obstructing wisdom, causing difficulties, leading away from Nibbana. When we reflect in this way, with those patterns of thought, we will experience just as the Buddha described when he was a bodhisattva, then those thoughts subsided. It's like we're calling up the allies of wise reflection to help us disengage from our clinging and identification with these thought patterns. Now the Buddha also makes an interesting distinction between how we apply mindfulness with unskillful thoughts and with skillful ones. Well, this is interesting, you know, that we apply it in a different way. With the unskillful patterns, you know, those thoughts that we recognize as rooted in greed or hatred or delusion, we need an active vigilance. The mind has to be quite actively on guard. It's an actively engaged mindfulness so that we don't just slip into these unwholesome patterns. And he uses an example, again, from those agrarian times. He's the example of a cowherd who's watching all the cows during the season when the crops are still in the field. They haven't been harvested yet. So the cowherd has to be very watchful of the cows so they don't stray into the crops and damage the crops. The wholesome states of mind need a different kind of mindfulness. And again, he uses the image of the cowherd. Just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, a cowherd would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree or out in the open, since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too, with these wholesome states, there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. 
tireless energy was aroused in me and unremitting mindfulness was established. My body was tranquil and untroubled. My mind concentrated and unified. It's always a happy ending in these stories. So with the unskillful thought patterns, the mindfulness has to have that active vigilance about them. With wholesome thought patterns, wholesome mind states, that quality of vigilance is extra. We don't need that. And in fact, that vigilance with wholesome states could actually lead to disturbance of mind. And then we simply need to know, oh, there's a, there's a wholesome thought present or a wholesome mind state present. That's all that's needed. So why is this discernment between the two kinds of thoughts, the unskillful patterns and the skillful ones, why is it so important? Why did the Buddha give so much emphasis to it? He pointed out, the Buddha pointed out later in the same discourse, something tremendously important and far-reaching. He said that whatever we frequently think upon and ponder, that will become the inclination of the mind. Frequent repetition of thought patterns, frequent repetition of emotional states actually strengthen the neural pathways in the brain which make it easier for those same kinds of thought, those same patterns of thought and emotion to arise again. So what pathways are we strengthening? If we're not paying attention to which are skillful and which are unskillful, very often, unknowingly, we're strengthening the patterns which lead to more suffering for ourselves and for others. So it takes this quality of mindfulness, which discerns the difference, skillful, unskillful. So we can abandon the one and cultivate the other. As we are practicing this discernment, mindfulness of thought in this way, It's also important to check our attitude about the thought process itself. What's our attitude often deeply conditioned about the fact that we're thinking? Masaida Utejaniya speaks a lot about this. And I just want to read a few of his teachings He said, when the mind is thinking or wandering, just be aware of it. Thinking is a natural activity of the mind. You are doing well if you are aware that the mind is thinking. But if you feel disturbed by thoughts or if you have a reaction or judgment of them, there is a problem with your attitude. The wandering mind is not the problem. Your attitude that they should not be around, is the problem. So understand that you have just become aware of some functions of the mind. Thoughts, too, are just objects for your attention. 
When you feel disturbed by the thinking mind, remind yourself that you are not practicing to prevent thinking. This is an important message for meditators. We are not practicing to prevent thinking, but rather to acknowledge and recognize thinking whenever it arises. So we're practicing taking it as an object of our awareness. It does not matter whether thinking stops or not. It is more important that you understand whether your thoughts are skillful or unskillful, appropriate or inappropriate, necessary or unnecessary. This is a very different attitude towards thoughts than many of us have. Because somehow we often carry the idea that, oh, in good meditation, thoughts shouldn't arise. And if a lot of thoughts are coming, it means we're not meditating well. That just adds to the struggle. It's a, it's a deepening of a wrong attitude. Our practice is to be aware of thoughts. And then to discern, is it skillful, is it unskillful? So as you're working with thoughts in your practice, see if you can exercise the remembering function of sati and remember this. Okay, so far we've been talking about thoughts on the relative level. We've been talking about the content of our thoughts and the, could say, the karmic consequences of the content. But it's also possible to be aware of thought on the more ultimate level. That is, understanding its empty nature. So here we become mindful, or we practice being mindful not of what the thought is saying, but actually of the nature of the phenomenon of thought. So when a thought is, a present, is arising in the mind and we're working on this level, on the more ultimate level, then when a thought arises, it's as if we're holding the question, what is a thought? And the point of the question is not to come up with an answer. The point of the question is to direct the mind to look into the very nature of thought. Not the content, not what it's saying, but what the thought is as a phenomenon. Now this is really interesting. It's something very few people do in their lives, mostly We're just lost in the story of our thoughts. And we take the content to be all important. And on the relative level, it is important. So we want to have a wise discernment. But we also want to understand it on the more ultimate level of emptiness. So when we're sitting and thoughts are rising, and you remember to direct the mind with that unspoken question, okay, what is a thought? And we're looking directly at it because it's what's arising in the moment. It's so easy to see its insubstantiality. What's so amazing in our lives is how much power unnoticed thoughts have. Unnoticed thoughts are like little dictators in the mind. Go here, go there, do this, do that. Just endless. 
It's just an endless barrage of opinions, of judgments, of comments, of commands. Of They have so much power. They run our lives when they're unnoticed. <laughs> What's so amazing is that as soon as we actually pay attention to the nature of thought, we see that it's little more than nothing. It's just... <laughs> It's just this little blip of energy in the mind. This is from Kensi Rinpoche, who was really one of the greatest of the Tibetan uh, Dzogchen masters of the last century. He said, when a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors. Yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thought should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, they will continue to torment us mercilessly, mercilessly, as they have been doing through countless past lives. So, when we understand this, you know, and we start using thought in our practice, as a vehicle for seeing its empty nature, it's tremendously liberating. Now, there's a tremendous space and openness which arises when we're no longer enslaved by our thoughts. So mindfulness of thought in all of these different ways you know, just aware of the quickly passing ones and trying to see where in that process we pick it up after it's over, in the middle, in the beginning. Discerning the difference between skillful and unskillful thoughts right, so that we can cultivate one and abandon the other. And seeing into thought's empty nature. So working with thoughts in all of these ways can lead us directly into an understanding of how to work with emotions how to become mindful of emotions. Now, as we all know, emotions are a complex experience. It's a complex phenomena. An emotion involves thought and sensations in the body and mental affects. You might call it the coloration of the mind. And there's a wide range of ability in how well we recognize emotions when they're present, to know what we're feeling. For some people, it's really quite difficult to recognize different emotions. You know, and we might be going on in our lives, you know, doing all kinds of things, not even recognizing that there's an underlying emotion that might be driving it all. For others, we may know, you know, we may recognize what emotion is present, but we may be in the habituated pattern of being lost in them, 
of being carried away by them. So there are different ways we can connect with being mindful of emotions and different mind states in general, and then more specifically, being mindful of what are called the afflictive emotions, those emotions that cause suffering, cause suffering to ourselves, cause suffering to others. One way that links our mindfulness of thinking with mindfulness of emotion, and I've just found this incredibly fascinating to watch in my own mind, to see how often a particular thought, or it might be an image in the mind, can sometimes immediately trigger a strong emotion. You know, we might have the thought of somebody who may have harmed us. And the thought of that person comes and there can be an immediate arousal of anger or hurt, or whatever it might be. Or we might think of someone for whom we have a lot of love. And we just think of that person, we see the image of that person, and immediately, just, just in the moment, there's a feeling, an emotion of open-heartedness, you know, of warmth, of love, of caring. Or there might be a thought or an image of somebody for whom we feel a strong attraction. And just in the moment of thinking, maybe there's strong desire arising in the mind, or strong lust in the mind. And what's so amazing is just to watch how quick it can happen, how thoughts, in many cases, condition different emotions. And all of this can be happening when we're sitting or walking without any contact with these people at all, except as a thought in the mind. So it's not that the person in all of these different situations is actually there. All that's there is a thought. But if we're not mindful right in that moment of the thought, it can easily trigger these emotional responses. So it's helpful to begin noticing the trigger thoughts for different emotions. So if there are certain patterns that happen again and again, you know, and we may not be aware of it right in the beginning, we find ourselves in the middle of the emotion, just check back to see if there was a thought that triggered it. Because if we can get adept, if we can become really mindful of the trigger thoughts for the emotions, it's very interesting to actually watch that process because it reveals the conditioned, impersonal nature of emotion. I've had, I've played with this many times. I I can give many examples, but there was one situation where there was just sort of an organizational conflict going on, you know, and there were some people who for some reason I cannot fathom, disagreed with me. <laughs> yeah, so, but in a way that I really didn't appreciate. <laughs> and so I was on retreat, and, and this thought would come into my mind. And as soon as the thought came, immediately I could feel myself getting irritated. Yeah. And I was just watching this. So after a while, I started intentionally having the thought 
because I just wanted to see it happen. And what was amazing is that even when I intentionally had the thought, it still triggered the emotion. But because, because I was really there with that whole process, I, w- I was watching and I was being mindful of it. And it just showed, it revealed so clearly, first, how conditioned emotions are, in this case by a thought, you know, in a memory, and how impersonal they are. You know, so it's very interesting to watch this process. When we're not so quick at seeing the trigger thought, you know, and the trigger of the emotion and watching that process in the moment, there are other signals, other experiences that can remind us to be mindful, to look, to investigate at what emotions might be present. So one, one signal, one feedback is just in the course of a day, you know, sometimes we just, we just feel ill at ease, out of sorts. We feel unhappy in some way, but we don't really know what's going on. It's just this general malaise. And maybe connected with it is a lot of obsessive thoughts, and maybe not. But that general feeling can be a signal to us if we're just feeling ill at ease, instead of it being a problem, it could be a feedback to just take a deeper look. Okay, what emotion may be present? Maybe, it's, maybe there's an unnoticed feeling of anxiety, or maybe an unnoticed feeling of worry, or of irritation. It could be so many different things. But we need to look, we need to see, so we can be mindful of the emotion rather than unknowingly caught in it and carried along by it. Another very useful feedback is when we find ourselves in the middle of some action, maybe an action of our bodies or of our speech or even of our minds, where it doesn't feel quite right. You know, we're doing something and it just, it has that edge that we know this isn't quite right. I've had this experience a couple of times on retreat at IMS. I don't know whether that happens here at the Forest Refuge so much, but you know, at the retreat center, uh, at different times they'll put out certain dishes where there's a limited amount, and they'll be assigned moderation, please. Well, one time I was on retreat and I was going through the line, and there was something I really liked. Moderation, I said, well, I wonder how much I can get away with and still be moderate. And so I took really more than what was moderate. And I do. You know, I didn't feel quite right doing it, but I just was going ahead and doing it. But then the very process of not feeling quite right in it, I mean, it took me you know, some moments down the line, but it made me then look, okay, well, what was motivating that? What, what emotions were there? And if, I saw first that there was just the greed, the desire. Then I saw that there was a bit of shame about having indulged it. So the feeling of things not being quite right actually became a useful reflection back for me. Okay, take a look. You know, what's going on in the mind? So even if we're mindful after the fact, 
it's better than not being mindful at all. You know, it's a situation, okay, I can learn from this. Sometimes we don't recognize what's happening because we're misperceiving it. And because we're misperceiving it, we're really not quite aligned with what the feeling actually is. And again, you know, I have all these stories from my retreats, and that's why I appreciate retreats so much, and I have a lot of mudita for all of you being here, because it's just like a great laboratory, you know, for exploring the nature of this mind, the nature of this body. You know, we can learn so much just by watching, by paying attention. So one time I was, you know, I was on retreat, and one day I was just feeling unhappy. Now, I was, I was feeling an emotion. I was calling it sadness. You know, I was not oh, sad, sad, sad. But I still felt locked into it. And that feeling of being locked in made me investigate further. And when I looked further, I saw that it wasn't sadness. It was unhappiness. And there's, the emotions are a little bit similar, but actually, when we look carefully, they're, they're really quite different. They're different feelings. And as soon as I aligned accurately with what was actually there, then it was easy to let it, to become accepting of it, and to simply let it come and wash through. So I just appreciated at those times when we're feeling stuck to just look more carefully and see, okay, am I seeing, am I seeing accurately what the emotion is? And so sometimes simply the question, you know, we sit back and ask, okay, what's happening? What is this? Sometimes we won't know, you know, and we might simply notice confusion. But then we're accurately noticing the confusion. We're becoming mindful of that rather than enmeshed in it. So the clear recognition of what's present makes possible the next essential step in working with emotions. Because it's not enough to clearly recognize what it is. The next step is mindful acceptance. You know, what's our attitude about this emotion? Now, acceptance of the emotion doesn't mean that we're justifying it to ourselves. It doesn't mean that we're wallowing in them. It doesn't mean that we're judging them. It's the simple acknowledgement and okayness with the fact that this particular emotion is present. So acceptance here is another aspect of mindfulness. If we're not accepting of what's present, we're not being mindful. So we have to check. First step is recognizing what's there, and then are we accepting of it? And this is right out of the Satipatthana Sutta, in different places, but in the section on the hindrances. You know, the first instruction, one knows if sensual desire is present in me or not. One knows whether aversion is present in me or not. You know, it goes through the different hindrances. It's also in the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind. One knows whether the mind is concentrated or not, restless or not. So it's just this simple recognition and acceptance. So how do we know whether we're accepting 
one indication that we're not accepting what's present is if there's just some feeling of struggle. You know, if we're sitting, if we're walking and we're feeling something, and even if we recognize what it is, but if there's not a sense of ease with it, if there's a sense of struggle, struggle means only one thing. It means we're not accepting what's present. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So it's really simple. And again, we can use that feeling of struggle as feedback. It doesn't have to be a problem. We don't have to see it as a problem. It's actually telling us something. So one time I was in Burma practicing. It was incredibly noisy. I mean, the monastery was right in the middle of the city. And my room on one side, it was right on the edge of the monastery, so right over the wall, there was a village, and the women were doing laundry, and the way they do laundry there is pounding the clothes on rocks. So on, on one side was just this pounding all day long. On the other side, in the monastery, they were doing construction, and they were straightening these, these metal rebars, and straightening them out, just banging metal on metal all day. So I'm sitting in the middle of this, an unhappy yogi. <laughs> yeah, my mind was going through all kinds of, so here I come all the way to Burma to practice, to get enlightened, and <laughs> you know, all of this is preventing me. <laughs> but at a certain point, you know, I was just reactive to the noise and frustration and caught up in these mind states. And at first, justifying it to myself. You know, well, <laughs> I should be angry. But then at a certain point, I realized, that's ridiculous. And I just took a different look. I, I just started looking, okay, what's happening in my mind? And I just saw, you know, in that moment of a fresh look, oh, this is complaining mind. My mind was just complaining about the noise. As soon as I could name it, and accept it. Oh, this is complaining mind. The whole charge of it went out. And then it became much easier just to sit with the noise. And if at times, you know, the mind had these reactions or judgments, I could just see it for what it is, let them go. It made it so much more easeful when I could recognize it and accept it. I could see it accurately. Sometimes we don't recognize and accept emotions because they're too painful. You know, some, sometimes emotions, they can be more painful, more difficult than physical pain, you know, because they're felt as being more pervasive. So we don't like opening to them, we don't want to open to them. Or maybe we don't recognize and accept what's present because whatever it is that's arising doesn't fit our idea of being a good yogi. Oh, good meditators aren't greedy. Good meditators don't have rage or whatever. And so 
we just deny that it's happening. <laughs> you know, oh, this can't be happening. And so we just don't really see it, don't open to it. Of course, this just contributes to a massive self-delusion. As long as we're unwilling to open to and feel certain emotions, we live very defensively. We're living always trying to protect ourselves from feeling these things. And so in our practice, it's just the opposite. Yeah, there are painful feelings, and just as we can learn to open to physical pain, you know, and at first it's difficult and challenging, but after some time, the mind develops some capacity. It's okay, we can feel the unpleasantness in the body. We can do the same thing with emotions. It's unpleasant, painful even. It's okay, just let me feel it, let me be with it. Sometimes, though, we need to approach this very slowly. Because especially if people are dealing with old traumas, you know, and often in meditation, this old material starts to surface. And there are times when that can really be overwhelming, where the mind loses balance because the feelings, the emotions may be so intense that are coming up. So we need to exercise some wisdom in how we're opening. If the mind is balanced, if it's okay, then with these painful emotions, we actually practice, okay, this is okay, let me feel it. If we're feeling overwhelmed, if we're feeling out of balance, then we need to back off. It's not helpful at all just to plunge into it if the mind is feeling overwhelmed. We need to back off, create more space, titrate how fast and how intense you know, the emotion comes up. And then gradually, in a very slow way, we learn to be with these feelings. So we need to exercise really emotional intelligence of how we are mindful with different emotional states. As with thoughts, with different emotions, we also want to discern which are skillful, which are unskillful. And it's interesting, sometimes we might hear the phrase unskillful emotion and it doesn't sound right because, you know, it's something that we're trying to open to and acknowledge and even honor the fact that it's present. Unskillful simply means, and an easier word to let in, I think, is afflictive because it really describes what the nature of unskillful emotion is about. It's not some moral judgment about ourselves. It's about certain emotions are afflictive. They afflict us. They are the cause of suffering. So again, we want to be able to open to the range, but also to discern which emotions, which mind states, are skillful or ultimately to happiness. Which emotions are unskillful, are afflictive, which lead to suffering. Because then, through mindful acceptance of the whole range, we see which are to be cultivated, which are to be let go of. So we need to bring in this, this quality of wise discernment. Sometimes, 
sometimes it's difficult to exercise this discernment because unskillful emotions are sometimes very seductive. This part of us that enjoys them, even as they cause us suffering. <laughs> the Buddha captured this so well in talking about anger. He said, anger with its poisoned root and honeyed tip. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's so accurate because you know, often with anger, we, we feel energized and we feel righteous and this part of us which really enjoys being angry but not seeing its poisoned root, right? that it's really coming from an unskillful mind state. And so we just have to learn to look deeply you know, into our experience and to look at the root. Is the root of the emotion wholesome, rooted in non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion? Or is the emotion rooted in unwholesome states? Again, all of this is a function of mindfulness. This is so important, not only for ourselves, but also for our care for the world, because it's not that emotions are simply arising in our own minds and affecting us. We're often acting on them. They become the motivating force for many of our actions. So we want to know, is this action for good or for harm in the world? So the last step in working with afflictive emotions, and really all emotions, is the most difficult, and it's also the most liberating. And this again brings us from the level of the relative truth or the content to the level, more ultimate level, of seeing its emptiness. And that is learning to be with emotions, to feel them, to open to them, without identifying with them without taking them to be I, taking them to be self. Really notice the difference when an emotion, any emotion, arises. Notice the difference between our usual mode of relating to them and expressing that relationship this is very common. This is our normal way of communicating. I feel happy. I feel sad. I feel angry. You know, somebody asks, how do you feel? I feel this way. I feel that way. And so even in our ordinary languaging of it, we are identifying with that emotion as being who we are, taking it to be self. See the difference between that in the moment that the emotion is actually present. So we're, this is the laboratory. The emotion is present and see the difference of understanding it, I'm feeling this way, I'm feeling that way. Seeing the difference between that and, oh, anger is like this. Happiness is like this. Sadness is like this. That's a very different relationship to the emotion. That's opening to it, exploring how it feels, but without the identification with it. There's much greater freedom and ease and spaciousness in our lives when we can be with emotions in this way. When we see them arising out of momentary conditions, changing as the conditions change. 
there's an image in one Tibetan text which just expresses beautifully this openness. It says, clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home. So just imagine, I mean, sometimes I'm amused just by the image of a cloud being rooted, you know, this root coming down to the earth. It's so ridiculous. You know, the clouds, cloud formations are just created when the conditions are there. They disperse when the conditions change. The clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home. Thoughts and emotions are exactly the same. They have no roots, no home. And yet we're continually rooting them, taking them to be self, taking them to be I. So we practice with both thoughts and emotions on this more ultimate level of seeing their empty conditioned nature. Right? They're just arising out of conditions, passing away when the conditions change. Again, this is from one of the suttas. So indeed, these states not having been come into being, having been they vanish. Regarding these states, abide unattached, unrepelled, independent, non-attached, free, not identified with a mind free of barriers. You know, it's so all of these practices of being mindful on the level, on the relative level, on the more ultimate level of being with thought and emotion open up possibilities of a much greater happiness and ease and peace in our lives. When we engage with thoughts and emotions from a place of interest, in a place of investigation, in a place of inquiry, we can see them all arise and pass away in this open sky of the mind. Let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.